Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Neil Dutta with us now, head of U.S. economics at Renaissance Macro, kind enough to join us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios on this uh, blustery day. Neil, let me ask you about what happened a couple weeks back. You said the FOMC members sent an aggressive uh, signal about a rate hike at this meeting. What Now that we're two weeks hence, what do you think caused that? What caused the about phase, that change in, in tenor, that change uh, uh, in attitude from members of the FOMC? Oh, I, I think you'll have to ask them because I don't really <laughs> have a good sense. Um, you know, I think this is a, Fed hi- a hike that the Fed basically sought out. Um, and I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, had they not jawboned the markets over the last couple of weeks, um, would the markets have been priced um, for a rate hike in March after that jobs number? I think probably yes, um, but that's not a guarantee. So, you know, it wasn't as if the market wasn't treating the meeting in March as a live meeting. I mean, I think if you went right immediately before the Dudley interview, uh, I think the markets were priced about 40 to 50 percent for a rate hike in March. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's interesting uh, that they that they sort of squawk the odds higher. I think ultimately what's happening is that their outlook is becoming stronger, uh, and that I think is a function of the financial conditions easing that we've seen over the last several months, uh, particularly since the election. And at the same time, we've seen corporate earnings accelerate. So it, it, it's possible that um, they may have misread uh, the economic outlook uh, to date. I mean, this is a easing of financial conditions alongside a stronger economy. Uh, and even after they hiked in December, uh, monetary conditions generally eased. Um, so I think uh, they're basically moving from, you know, two hikes with – you know, the risk of three to three hikes with the risk of four. Mm. And whether, um, and so if they want to potentially move four times, it makes sense uh, to go in uh, to go in March. Is this a Fed that needs to hike at this meeting or is it a Fed that wants to hike uh, at this meeting? Well, I think if you've needed to, if you're, if you're waiting until you need to, then you've waited too long. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, going early gives them the option of going more gradually later. Um, and you know, I think they could, you know, it's all about benefits and costs at every meeting. And, uh, you know, what do we know? We know that, uh, you know, wage growth is picking up modestly. Um, we know that um, inflation is picking up. Uh, core inflation is rising modestly. Um, you know, if you look at uh, private domestic demand, it's quite healthy. Um, so, again, I mean, um, I think the issue is why did, why March and not June. Um, you know, yeah. they, they they could they could have they could have gone in June and, and sort of it would have been fine. I think also help me here with within the the Fed Derby and all that with what happens because they raise rates. The vice chairman of the Fed was ultra accommodative. I'm going to argue that, that that Professor Fisher invented that phrase. He told me a few weeks ago we're now accommodative. 
I would suggest with one or even two rate increases, we're still accommodative. Are we? I mean, I think so. Is anyone really changing their forecast because the Fed's <laughs> or their to, behavior? Yeah, because the Fed's pulling forward a hike from June into March. I don't it, think it, so. If so. rates go up, do I sell? Do I sell everything and buy bonds? I mean, that you know, in terms of market behavior. Uh, I wouldn't because I think the underlying economy is strengthening, and that means you should continue to short the front end of the, right. of the market, uh, of the Treasury market. And I, I would also say that, uh, you know, one of the interesting wrinkles this time around is that um, we may not get a, a sort of Greenspan conundrum as the Fed is hiking uh, in a more normalized fashion because the term premium on, on fixed income securities is starting at a much this lower a, level. This is really important. Let's revisit this right now. If we are measured in our rate hikes now, it is different than when Chairman Greenspan was measured? I believe so. I mean, when, when the Fed was hiking um, in 2004, as they were hiking, the term premium on, on bonds was, uh, was declining. And that created a much swifter flattening of the yield curve uh, than we would have anticipated. Um, so you didn't get that back up in longer-term interest rates that you would have expected with the Fed raising rates, you know, from one percent to five and a quarter. Um, you know, this time around, the Fed is, you know, arguably on the front end of a, a more normalized tightening cycle. So this isn't like 2015 and 2016, and yet the term premium on bonds is starting at a very low base, and so uh, with only room for upside, particularly with the global economy healing and with global central banks losing their appetite to go more aggressive uh, with respect to policy. So I think if you put those two things together, it, it may argue that uh, as the Fed is raising rates on short term, at the short term, um, you may see uh, that translate uh, into longer term rates um, at a more normal in a norm, mm -hmm. more normal fashion, which means the flattening of the yield curve that you see when you get a Fed tightening may be a lot more drawn out this time. Yeah, spell that out for me a little bit more here as we try to pin down the definition of normal in the context of normal hiking cycle or normal tightening cycle. Why is that yield curve going to look – why is that flattening going to happen differently? Well, I think it's going to happen differently because the term premium is rising. Remember, so most, most of the time we tend to think that longer-term interest rates are essentially expectations of future short-term interest rates. Um, but, you know, for example, in 2014 and 2015, you didn't really see that, right? You saw the two-year yield continue to rise, but the 10-year yield actually came down. Uh, why did it come down? Well, primarily because the global economy was very crummy and also because central banks overseas were easing and that drove flows into U.S. treasuries, given that sort of safe haven um, asset. Now, um, you know, when I say the Fed is tightening in a more normal fashion, mm. I don't mean the Fed is going eight times a year, <laughs> but um, I think they could – I mean, you, we can expect maybe that they'll go more predictably, you know, maybe every other meeting, but, you know, I mean, certainly more times than one. Right. And so um, and this is also happening with the global economy improving. So you get the Fed raising short term rates. You get the term premium rising on longer term rates. And so um, all else equal, that means yeah. that the curve is steeper than it otherwise would have been. Neil, you mentioned earlier and it's something we haven't talked about this morning. Again, thanks for coming in. Investment. There's just an assumption that at some point it's going to it's going to return. But has it? Well, it's just starting to now. Um, I think it's important for your listeners to know that a lot of the weakness in investment in the U.S. started in the middle of 2014 when we had these big market moves that really defined the last 18 months. I mean, the widening out of corporate bond market spreads, um, the rise in the dollar, the um, 
decline in commodity prices. But do you, the confidence, the Trump bump that we see at NFIB, mm-hmm. the new confidence out there within the new political regime, has that gone over to where Fortune 500 companies are actually going to spend more money? I don't see evidence of it yet. Am I wrong? Yes, I think so. I mean, if you look at if if you look if you if you look at um, something like core capital goods orders, which is I know a uh, an indicator that you follow. I mean, those uh, you know core shipments are up, um, you know, modestly over the last three to six months. Core orders are up even more, and so that that spread okay. tells you that business investment is likely to accelerate over the next couple of uh, couple of months, at least through the uh, end of the first half of this year. Uh, obviously, business confidence is moving up, and um, I think what's important is that remember what drives investment. Most economists think that it's an accelerator effect. Basically, you think growth picks up, and then you tend to invest more now. And so um, I think what's really been lacking is that we've had a lack of a global accelerator because the global economy has been very weak. Of course, now the global economy is starting to grow above trend for the first time in as long as we can remember. And I think that's going to drive some stronger investment uh, domestically. And as I say, I mean, I, was, I, I mentioned financial conditions. Financial conditions have been easing. So the fact that commodity prices have picked up, the fact that uh, real, term, uh, real uh, interest rates remain low, the fact that equity prices have accelerated, um, all of these things, what they lag, have a positive influence on uh, on, on, on capital spending. So um, uh, we know that corporate profits are accelerating. Um, again, that's good news for capital spending. So I think uh, 2017 is going to be a year where you see growth kind of broaden out away from the consumer uh, and to businesses. Let me naively opine on the NFIB, and I'll have John Tucker jump in here <laughs> as well. But it seems like month after month we get this uh, we get this confirmation of optimism and enthusiasm from small businesses. Um, yet we don't see a lot of capex. I mean, what's the, what's the utility of this survey? What's it telling us, and how long is that optimism going to persist? Do you think, Neil? Well, I mean, I think clearly, if uh, small businesses are this optimistic. Um, the elected uh, representatives in in Washington will have to work very difficult to meet those expectations. Um, um, They'll have to work very hard to meet those expectations. In terms of the utility of the survey itself, I mean, it's something that we pay attention to. Um, You know, it has a reasonably strong correlation with GDP. um, But, of course, they're both cyclically correlated variables. I think what's interesting is that um, if you run the numbers, the NFIB tends to overpredict GDP growth when Republicans in the, are in the White House and tends to o- underpredict when hmm. Democrats are in the White House. So it's interesting, for example, if you just look at a long-term chart, um, the NFIB was actually higher uh, in the mid-2000s than it was in the 90s. Does anyone honestly think that the mid-2000s were a stronger period for economic growth in the late 1990s? So um, it's important. I mean, it's not useless information, but it's also important to keep in the back of your mind what the NFIB does. Also, it's not qualitative. Right. So uh, the job openings component reached its highest level since December 2000, but more owners reported difficulty finding qualified workers. So it's time to uh, pony up, I would say. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, in 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 the same report, you also saw compensation plans and uh, actually, you know, go down, right? So modestly. Right. So it, it, you know, I mean, it, you're not going to get it lining up every every single time the way you'd expect. Neil Dutta, thank you so much for coming into this snow shovel on your way out the door. Do something <laughs> out on Lexington Avenue.
David, I'm going to have you bring in our esteemed guest, other than to say when he is out on Twitter, those on the right and those on the left, stop. <laughs> it's just that simple. Andy Slavitt, he was the former administrator of Medicare and Medicaid, joins us. Uh, now, let's talk about the CBO report we got yesterday. You've, you've gone through it, I'm sure. What stands out to you? We, we, we have the note about the deficit. We have the note about how many people would be covered or not covered. Uh, give, us, uh, give us the most important points as you see them. Sure. Well, thanks, guys. I think the most uh, important perspective uh, is this is really uh, drives home that it's bad news for many, many Americans. So as you mentioned, uh, 24 million people are expected to lose coverage over the decade, uh, including 14 million beginning just next year. Uh, I think secondly, there's a 25 percent cut to the Medicaid program, uh, which I think uh, may even be more significant uh, third is that Medicaid will will change how it works, and not only will 25% of the program be cut, but it will be capped. Um, and then finally, people's affordability uh, will go down. The cost of insurance will go up. Their tax credits will go down. Deductibles uh, right. will go up. Those are all the kind of critical protections. Right. Andy, Andy, David wants to get into the Washington Wonkdom. I want to stop for a moment and suggest, with your experience out of Penn and out of Harvard, with the Mayo Clinic, with your working in healthcare, you've actually worked in the trenches of making our healthcare industry more efficient, less costly as a percent of GDP. Can you maintain that hope, whichever way this legislation goes? Well. You know, health care is one of those uh, sectors that I think is uh, frustrating to many and how difficult it is to change. You know, we've seen so many industries that you all talk about, technology, communications, sort of transform before our eyes. And healthcare is very, very hard to make uh, progress. And over the last seven years, we've had more people in the system, we've had lower cost growth, and we've had higher quality than we've seen in the decades before. I think a lot of that progress was due to the catalyst of the ACA, uh, but it was really due to, as you suggest, working people around communities who were really trying to work and take advantage of that change. So I think uh, a setback, uh, to say the least, would be if all these people lost coverage and uh, the hospitals in the country that were getting paid for these folks uh, were now seeing higher uncompensated care. I think that'd be a real challenge. You know, we talked to you, we talked to Dr. Toby Cosgrove at the Cleveland Clinic, we talked to a lot of clinicians and people in uh, public health. Where is innovation in healthcare going to come from? Does the government have the ability to catalyze uh, more innovation or better healthcare? You look at what's happening here, you see uh, squabbling over who has a seat at the table, who isn't at the table. Uh, are, are you giving up any faith that the government has an ability to do something here? You know, I think government's best role in innovation is to set in motion uh, a set of objectives, and then sort of get out of the way and not over-regulate. I think the idea behind uh, letting states and uh, local communities and hospitals drive innovation in the private sector and be supported by the public sector is the model that we've seen work best. Uh, you know, the place where we need innovation in healthcare is actually uh, not where we sometimes get it. Where we need it is in taking care of the really sickest of people, the poorest people, those are the people that drive up costs the most. Um, so while, while we yeah. may all know 
the next Fitbit. This is the place where we need the help. Help me with what happens when we get to the Senate. You've worked with uh, Wyden of Minnesota. You're Minnesota. But Andy Slavitt, help, help me here with what Republicans do. What do you presume will change in the discourse as we migrate from an enthusiastic House over to a more circumspect Senate? No, that, that's a great question. And I think one of the things we're learning this morning is the House may be even less, less enthusiastic since the CBO report came out. But you're certainly, your point is certainly correct. If it does get to the Senate, there are a number of senators, and the people I would particularly focus on are the people from states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Louisiana that have one thing in common. Their governors and their states have expanded Medicaid, meaning they've taken advantage of the Medicaid expansion under the ACA. They have the most to lose, and they would be asked to take a vote really against the interests right. of their state. Okay, this and is, I think that's going to be a different dialogue. Here, help me with the math last night, because David Gurr read 14 articles. <laughs> I only read three. But help me here with the math. We're going to save $300 gajillion if we do this. But are we saving $300 gajillion because we're just transferring the expense over to Rob Portman in Ohio? That's a great great way to look at it. So here's how, here's how I look at the numbers, big picture. There's about an $800 billion tax cut, about a $300 billion deficit savings. That has to come from somewhere. Where does it come? It comes from cutting health care by $1.2 trillion. So when you cut that $1.2 trillion, you're right to ask, does that just disappear? Do we never spend that money? Or does that get shifted over to states and individuals? And the reality is it doesn't bring costs down. It doesn't make people less sick. It doesn't make people need to use the system any, any less. It just puts the burden back onto them. And, and I think we all remember back in 2000, or some of us remember, Back in 2009, when we had record bankruptcies, when we had record bad debt, when we had over a trillion dollars in uncompensated additional care, and we all paid for it in our premiums. So I I tend to think you're right. We pay for it one way or the other. Uh, Andy Slavitt, uh, what are the biggest deficits of the Affordable Care Act right now? And when you look at this legislation being proposed by some congressional Republicans, does it do anything uh, to help change that, to improve that? Well, I think the biggest concern is that we need... uh, we need to increase the affordability of health care for people in the middle class, people above 400 percent of poverty level. So roughly 75 percent of the people who buy individual insurance products on the exchanges get a subsidy. And that means that, that when premiums go up, they're really protected. But for the other 25 percent, uh, there really needs to be a set of solutions in place. Unfortunately, those solutions would come in the form of higher tax credits and reinsurance and what the bill has in it is lower tax credit. It does have something interesting that I think is positive, which is it has a, a fund being an innovation fund, uh, if you will, for states uh, that, that will help them control costs. I think that's a positive. I think that could be part of a solution. But taking down people's tax credits, particularly people who are low income and particularly people 55 to 64, that is going to be what sends people off of the insurance and, and really hurt it. Who's going to be defending the Affordable Care Act from your Democratic Party? I talked to Governor Jay Inslee of Washington. He said the governors need to play a bigger role here. Uh, do you agree, or are we going to see uh, House Democrats step up, Senate Democrats step up? Yeah, you know, I actually frame, would frame it a little bit different and say that, you know, defending the Affordable Care Act or any piece of legislation uh, it isn't really, at least from my view, where we, where we ought to be focused. And we ought to be focused on saying we've made a lot of gains in, in progress. We've, we've insured a lot more people. 
and we've done it with high-quality benefits, and we're protecting millions of people from pre-existing conditions. Let's just make progress. I don't think we should care what we call it. I don't think there should be any pride of authorship. Yeah. But if a plan comes forward, whether it's from a Democrat or Republican, that helps reduce the uninsured rate further with high-quality coverage, we all ought to salute it. Andy, thank you so much. Andy Slavitt with his work with President Obama and, of course, with the Centers for Medicare now. I really can't say enough about his, not only his writing, but his ability to bring in all the different sources, uh, particularly Andy Slavitt uh, out on Twitter. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Bob Haber, the founder of Proficio Capital Partners. We're going to talk about private equity uh, this morning. Broadly speaking here, Bob, what are we seeing in the private equity uh, space right now? What's the, what's the appetite for right now? Well, good morning. Uh, the, the, this one should be a no-brainer, we, and then we've done some research. But if you, if you uh, look at the um, long-term record of private equity, it's, um, it's stellar. Uh, it's a 25-year record. These are numbers publicly available from Cambridge Associates. Uh, they've uh, had about a 13-plus percent compound rate of return, uh, and there are a lot of funds seeking uh, funds now in the private equity sector. Big, big uh, funds are being formed for 2017. I can only imagine that with the, the conversation in Washington about uh, more public-private partnerships for infrastructure improvements, that's got to be good news for, for the industry as a whole. There are a lot of people there who must be anxiously awaiting more detail, more progress on that. I, I'm sure they are. There have also been some whispers about uh, removing the deductibility of, of interest, which would not help uh, on, on this type of investment. So there are plenty of cross-currents, as we, as we know, coming out of Washington. When you, when you look at that Cambridge Associates study, uh, how have returns been here recently? Well, you know, the, the interesting thing about private equity is you make your decision and you have what we call a vintage year, and so you buy that. Uh, then, generally speaking, the private equity funds uh, go and deploy your assets over the next couple years. And you look back after about 10 when it kind of winds up, and that's your vintage. And so when we explored uh, the Cambridge Associates data, mm. we found, oh, yeah, the long-term numbers are spectacular. But there were a couple of periods where you had bad vintages, where you didn't really want to get in. Yeah. And, uh, and that's... That's kind of the story, I think. Were those couple periods related to the frenzy to pour a lot of money at the private it, equity space? Yeah, it's hard to know exactly. We, uh, we found that uh, there were uh, two periods where there were two things in common. One, you paid kind of very high valuations uh, in right. the marketplace, and interest rates were rising. And those two periods, roughly 2005 and 97, we'll all remember what those mean, uh, ended up being much poorer vintages uh, because you bought expensive assets and you had rising interest rates. Mm -hmm. Bob, on the time that we've got left, help us here with uh, interesting securities, convertibles, et cetera, in a rising interest rate environment. Is, is the Fed your friend right now in convertible bonds? Is, your friend, is the Fed your friend uh, now in preferreds? 
They are if you uh, have things that are um, obviously floating rate. So there, we, we do like a lot of bonds which are floating rate. There are a whole bunch that are issued by banks. Uh, they're fixed to float bonds. Some of them are starting to float. And in those cases, you get uh, – there's lots of different securities out there, but you can get securities that are essentially investment grade and mm-hmm. pay you three to 400 over LIBOR. As LIBOR goes up, you're doing better. Bob Haber, thank you so, uh, so much. Too short this morning. We've got some weather uh, issues as well with Proficio. Uh, Bob Haber, of course, uh, iconic at Fidelity. It has been too long, David Gurra, since I've spoken with Ambassador Froman, Michael Froman, uh, with a distinguished academic pedigreed traveled the world with more frequent flyer miles than anyone but John Kerry (laughs) trying to do trade. One of his travels brought him to a stage in New York where he and I had a very constructive chat. And in the middle of the chat, we were interrupted by protesters right in our face. Ambassador Froman is used to this. He didn't panic. I'll be honest, Ambassador, my heart leapt about two inches because I'd never had you know, uh, people in my face protesting trade at three feet away. I mean, like a hockey crease away. <laughs> did 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 they win? I mean, with all that's gone on in the last two years, Ambassador, did the protesters to TPP, to the transatlantic effort, to the work of George Bush Sr., to the Atlantic Charter back to World War II, did those protesters win? That's a very good question, uh, Tom. Look, I I don't think they won uh, per se. I think what really happened is the Trump phenomenon, uh, because uh, even while we were facing protests and and opposition from traditional sources, in Congress, there was still a lot of support for TPP and for uh, the overall trade agenda. Uh, and, and but there was concern as uh, as candidate Trump was uh, talking about the anti-trade and anti-globalization efforts that mainstream Republicans felt as though uh, that their politics were changing back home, and that was different than the protests that, that you experienced uh, during that forum in New York, which I remember well, which was more of the traditional labor anti-globalization side of things as opposed to within the Republican Party a uh, weakness of their traditional support for free trade. Where do we go from here? There's a meeting that, that's uh, scheduled to be underway very soon with the 12 countries that were part of the TPP plus China and South Korea. China uh, saying I've seen reported this is not a meeting about the TPP. It's a broader meeting about uh, trade. But now that the U.S. has withdrawn from that deal that you worked so hard on crafting and trying to get through uh, Congress, what are the what are the next steps as you see them? Well, I think uh, this meeting in Chile is actually going to be quite interesting because, as you say, it's the TPP countries plus China plus a couple of other countries. And a number of the TPP countries would like to move ahead with TPP with or without the United States with the hope that at some point the United States might uh, might join. Um, I, but I think they're not going to wait for that. And what we're hearing about at this meeting in Chile is that countries will be talking to China about joining uh, RCEP, which is uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, that's sort of China's equivalent of TPP, or about expanding their bilateral ties uh, with, with China. Uh, Canada's announced that it's going to be in the process of thinking about an FTA, a free trade agreement with China. Peru has said before that if CPP doesn't move forward, it's going to have to uh, engage with China. 
And, and the irony of this, of course, is that, is that President Trump, who ran on very much on a need-to-be-tough-with-China policy, has taken a number of steps, including announcing the withdrawal from TPP, that has given China a big strategic and economic win, including in our backyard. And I think we're going to see that play out uh, in real time at that meeting in, in Chile. We're not sending a senior official because we don't have a fully staffed complement uh, in, in Washington. We'll be sending our local ambassador in, in Santiago, um, while other countries will be sending their trade ministers. And we'll be talking about what to do in the absence of the United States uh, in, in the Asia-Pacific to further their trade relations. Yeah, that and that will me. come at the expense of our businesses. That leads me to my next question, which is uh, we don't have Robert Lighthizer confirmed. We do have a date for, for his hearing set now on, on Capitol Hill. Uh, you've got Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, taking a lead on trade issues. Peter Navarro speaking out on trade uh, as well. How much of a, of, a, of a problem is it, as you see it, that we don't have one single person handling this? In other words, uh, d- defend the position that you had in the previous administration. How important is it to have a U.S. trade representative who is charged with overseeing trade entirely? Well, like trade policy, by definition, has always been done on an interagency basis, a lot of different agencies. And, of course, the White House has a strong interest in trade. Um, I think it is helpful. And, and every administration organizes their trade policy function somewhat differently. Uh, I think it is helpful for there to be a clear sense of who is speaking on trade for the administration. We certainly had that in the Obama administration. I think it worked to our advantage and it avoided forum shopping and countries running around trying to find weaknesses in the in the in the position. Uh, but you know, I think we also have to give this administration some time and space to get their act together, to get people in place, to do the policy process that they need to do around new issues and to figure out how they're going to execute on them. And uh, it's it's still fairly early in the administration, although uh, uh, certainly most administrations are further along than they are at this point. What is the prescription for those within the Republican Party to get us back to some form of dialogue on multilateral relations? Is it just patience and wait? You know, I think I think it's underscoring and and and, and uh, exploring what issues really cannot be done other than through those mechanisms. You take an issue like digital, the digital economy. One thing we did in the Trans-Pacific Partnership is negotiate a series of rules that would help define the digital economy in a way that, that was very much reflecting U.S. interests and, and U.S. values. You can't really build a global digital economy on a bilateral basis. You need as many countries, for a company's perspective, they need to know can their business model rely on the free flow of data across borders? Can they put their servers where they want to put them, where it makes business sense to do so? Can they store the data where it makes sense to do that? And, and this isn't just mm-hmm. Internet companies. Every manufacturing company is now a data company to one degree or another. And, and you can't really do that by just having agreements with one country at a time. You really need to establish a set of rules of the road for the oh. system for our companies to be able to to do that reliably. Ambassador, thank you so much. Michael Froman, the 17th U.S. Trade Representative uh, for the nation, of course, working with President uh, Obama. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.